It's again Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. So we are back, after a long hiatus, we are back in Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. You may have forgotten that we were doing this letter. We are back in it. This letter is all about grace to infinity and beyond. And because it's been a while, I've been trying to think about the best way to describe our position halfway through now, this letter. And, and what I came up with, I think the best way to sort of help us relocate where we are in this letter this morning is by reminding ourselves of the importance of stories. The importance of stories because we find ourselves in one. There are all kinds of stories that, that are competing every day for our allegiance. But I believe the one that is most true, that is true, is a redemption story. God's story of, of redeeming his creation until one day all submit to his loving rule. And in fact, it's because of the fact that we were in a redemption story that I think every redemption story we tend to hear resonates so deeply with us. So this past week, uh, my wife Katie was away for her grandmother's 90th. She was off island for that. And so for a full week, it was a, a boy's bachelor's week in the Oshlager household. And so we, we, we drank in our share of redemption stories, which is code word for movies. And um, as we sat before many of these movies, they were, all, they were stories of protagonists from humble beginnings who had, had, a, had a gift and a call on their life, and some mentor calls them out, calls out that gift in their life to, to live out their purpose, and usually to save the world. Okay, right? It's one of these stories. And so we watched uh, Ray from Star Wars struggling, in her words, to, to find her place in the world. And, and Luke Skywalker, her mentor, sees this gift in her, sees this call, and he calls it out in her. Or we watched Lord of the Rings and a regal uh, mentor named Elrond calls a gifted but wandering ranger named Aragorn from being a ranger to become the man he was born to be. And you get chills down your spine and you're like, yes, let's do this. Let's save Middle Earth together. Kind of a dork. But there was also Neo, Neo from Matrix. They've always watched The Matrix for the first time. It's a a big step. It's a big step. Uh, (laughs) They're laughing right now. Neo Neo from The Matrix questions himself if he is really the one. And he has a mentor named Morpheus who who calls him out to, to live his destiny. Such stories resonate with us because... We hope that maybe, just maybe, that we have been gifted, that we have a calling on our lives to do something beyond ourselves. We we hope that that's true, and yet we think to ourselves, well, I'm not a king, I'm not the one, I'm not a Jedi. But to you guys, to each of you this morning, comes the voice of the Apostle Paul, 
who is identifying the grace and call in your life and calling you to walk it out, to live it out, to actually be part of something beyond yourselves, this call on your life. This is your put aside your past and become who you were born to be moment that Paul gives to us. God's active love for you who trust Jesus is so infinite, so amazing. There's nothing you can do or nothing you could, could fail to do in your life that could diminish that great love. So it might help for us to think of the first half of Ephesians as being all about that love, the, the glorious experience of being adopted by God, redeemed by God, assured by God, having God turn your life around. And now as chapter 4 begins, it's what will you now do with that life? That's the second half of Ephesians. What will you do with that life? Will the redemptive love of Jesus reach beyond your heart, your mind, and your soul and into your actual daily life? Will it be practical for the way that you live? And Paul will say, yes, it is. Grace reaches beyond spectating. It reaches beyond normal. It reaches beyond our anger. It reaches beyond impulses. It reaches beyond the wedding day. It reaches beyond birth. And this morning we'll see it reaches beyond me. It reaches beyond me. Paul's going to explain to us in just six verses, what is this reaching beyond me calling in my life? And how will we walk it out? How will we live it out? So first, about calling... Paul doesn't explicitly tell us what it is, right? He says this calling to which you've been called. It feels mysterious. It feels Jedi-like, if you will. But he drops a major clue in verse 1 that his readers would have picked up. Read with it, that with me again here. I, therefore, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If we were to get out of pen and circle big words in Ephesians, words that we saw repeated over and over again, seven times you would circle the word walk. Walk, walk, walk. Peripateo, it's a very important word in Ephesians. Paul mentions it way more here than any other letter that he writes. Walk. It's an important word because Paul envisions life as a path that each person walks. And each person walks in either one direction on that path or they walk in the other direction on that path. One of two choices. He introduces this visual to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'll summarize it like this. You were spiritually dead, walking with Satan, even if it was unbeknownst to you. Walking with Satan, Paul says, as your unknown companion, and you produced sin. That's what you did. So you walked in this direction, walking with Satan, producing sin in your life. But, and that's the glorious but of verse 4, chapter 2, but God saved us, a God who's, who's rich in mercy, by grace, through faith, saves those of us who have put their faith in Jesus and calls us in a new direction. And we walk with Jesus now, producing good works in our lives, not sin, as we walk with him. So there's two directions in which we can walk in life. Paul is reminding us of that again here in chapter 4, as, as he's begins this exhortation to become who we are born to be, to walk out our lives calling. He's reminded that we're called to walk together with Jesus. And that's the message in a nutshell this morning. Jesus calls us to together walk with him. Jesus calls us to together walk with him. There's a beautiful simplicity about just that statement, right? Each day we can get up 
read the Bible, wake up, watch what Jesus does, listen to what Jesus teaches, talk with Jesus as Lord and friend, try to live like Jesus lived in our lives. There's a beautiful simplicity to that, isn't it? And yet none of us are called to walk with Jesus as individuals only. None of us are called to walk with him as individuals only. I want to read verse 1 to you again the way Paul's readers would have read it. This will be up on the screen too. But I want, I want, actually, why don't you do this? Read this with me, if you would, okay? I'll, I'll start us out. Repeat after me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. First of all, it's wonderful to hear you Brits and South Africans say y'all. Was it forced upon you? Yes. But you said it. There is no proper word in English for the plural you. There is in Greek, which is why we need Southern American diction in our lives. We need it. We need y'all. We need it. Thank you, Ruth. We need it because the Bible calls us to it. He calls us to walk together with Jesus. Paul is saying y'all. He's not saying you individually, but that's how we usually think of calling, isn't it? We usually categorize calling as this tailor-made call to myself. We, We think of it in terms of this individualized, unique, my purpose in life kind of call from God. I read a great article this week about the major flaw in New Year's resolutions. And it isn't that they are, they are too lofty or unrealistic, nor is it that 80% of us give up by February. The major flaw is that they are all about me. They are all about me. And I started to look back over my old resolutions, and it was true for myself. So if you said that during our icebreaker a minute ago, don't, don't worry. I wrote down exercise six days a week, six days a week, of course, rest on Sunday. That's one of my old ones. Uh, lead family worship every night. I need to do that. Uh, implement one romantic idea per week towards Katie. Um, my, it had gotten pretty low, so I needed to like, be intentional about that. And all of these were really about me doing something. Me doing something on my own. And I want to consider for a moment any resolution you've made for a new year. Isn't it usually something you've set about doing individually? By yourself? So when it comes to God, what does it look like then to walk with Jesus together? Together. You know, the Apostle Paul makes an assumption here when he writes to the church of Ephesus. The church that he's writing to, he assumes is going to walk together with Jesus. Now he's concerned about how they're going to walk with Jesus. How they're going to walk together. But he assumes they're going to do so. And I'm not sure we can make the same assumption living in the 21st century in the, in, the, in the kind of culture we live in, in the church we live in. It's probably a lot safer to assume that many of our resolutions, goals, pursuits, aims are individual in nature. And we need to make an intentional shift. Do I want to get to know Jesus better this year? Of course. Do I want to walk with Jesus this year? Yes, these are great resolutions. But we need to make that shift about how can I do this with other people? Community groups are about to start after a long hiatus. And the great opening question for that first week back would be, how do we want to grow together? How do we want to grow together? Or maybe you ask, here's how, 
here's how I want to grow. Is anyone else interested in joining me? Or maybe you ask someone, how are you hoping to grow personally? And, and how can I be of help to you in that? How can, I, how can I walk with you in that? And if you're not in a community group, maybe you have a, have a friend in the church whom you can ask this question. Or maybe you need to better position yourself to ask this question by, by joining a community group, by being part of a ministry team, by signing up for the newcomer's lunch upcoming, to, to connect with other people in the church, to better position yourself that you can walk together with others. That's the takeaway for many of us this morning. Full stop there is the y'all. It's not just a you calling to walk with Jesus. It's a y'all calling. And that's going to be the takeaway for many of us this morning. We, that's going to be the application. That's going to be the homework. How can I position myself to walk together with others, with Jesus? How can I do that? But the Apostle Paul moves on. He, he keeps going because he's concerned about how people do this. He's concerned about exhorting us towards unity. Unity in our care for one another as we walk together and unity in our convictions. And by the way, how often has the church done this the wrong way? Convictions and caring for each other. Love and truth. How often has the church done this the wrong way? Convinced about what's right or wrong, but there's no love there. There's no tenderness. There's no patience. There's no care. Or there's a soft-heartedness can't last because it's devoid of shared convictions. That's why people often give up on walking with, with Jesus together to do their own thing because they can't get along, right? There's truth but no love or there's love but there's no truth. So I'll just do my own thing. I'll give up. Paul must have experienced this also among the people that tried to walk with him. And so he writes about it and he says we have to be eager as we walk with each other to maintain this unity in this Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, one key to walking out our calling is unity of convictions. Unity without shared convictions, guys, is is superficial. It necessarily leads to misunderstandings, broken hearts, broken relationships, and worst of all, disillusionment. People give up on the possibility that unity can ever be achieved at all, and so they give up on the church. They think, this isn't even worth it. I don't want to be part of this. Eesh. In other words, a, a church be well-intentioned in its calls to unity around shared social outreach, social justice, social engagement, shared experiences, shared dialogue. But if we are to pursue something lasting and eternal, there has to be shared convictions too. Notice Paul mentions seven ones in verses four to six. Over and over again, he says, we are called into one body, one spirit, called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's often a misperception, even as we read this, that all Christians got to believe the same things, that all Christians then are like robots or carbon copies of each other, like, like Stepford wives. Paul makes it clear that we need to believe in the exact some things, not the exact same things. The exact some things, not always the exact same things. So in order to walk together with Jesus without tearing each other apart, I think it's 
helpful if we just take a step back and distinguish between what I'll call convictions, persuasions, and opinions. All right, I got a little fun concentric circle diagram behind you. And here's why I think this is important, because we often get these wrong. You'll see why this is important. If we get these wrong, it breaks relationships apart. Convictions are our core truths worth dying for. Paul gives a great list of these truths here in verses 4 through 6. One body, that if you've trusted Jesus, you are part of God's eternal church and called to walk together with others in a relationship with God. One spirit, one father, one Lord, one faith. It's a great reminder that only faith in Jesus is required to know the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. One expression of that faith is baptism. Going public with your faith, be that as a covenant member with your family at birth or like we practice here at sunrise as an adult. One hope, a bodily resurrection from the dead to be with Jesus face to face forever. These are the core truths. These are the essentials that all Christians are called to believe. These are our convictions. Where there's disagreement, unity must be broken here. In other words, if I started to preach about a different Lord, a different Father, a different faith, you should break unity with me. You should go somewhere else to a different church. I would encourage you to. There are convictions that bond all of us together. But as you, as you work your way out, there are things that are less core. Those are persuasions. Persuasions are, are probabilities worth debating. So you have convictions, these are core truths worth, worth, worth dying for. Persuasions are probabilities worth debating. These include things like the method of baptism, the continuance of unusual gifts of the Spirit. Did Jesus die for everyone or just people he chose? Old earth versus new earth. How old is this earth? (laughs) Church leadership. Things of that nature, which you're like, whoa, that's really important to me. And it might be, but it's not, those things are not core truths to the gospel. These are things to which you're persuaded. And, And where there's disagreement on these kinds of things, you can break away from that kind of church. Unity can be broken. I don't mean that you stop fellowshipping with those people, that you're not still part of the same universal church. I mean that It might be good to go to another church. It might be right for you. Or you live with the differences. You coexist with the differences that people have. It's important to talk about these things because sometimes Christians, especially pastors and leaders, can come across like these things are worth dying for. Like the way we do baptism is worth dying for. What I believe about when God created the world is worth dying for. And we can come across that way. And these are the things that break people apart. Like, wait a minute but I don't believe that. Am I not a Christian? Am I not good enough? Am I a second-tier, second-class Christian? See, so we need to be saying things like, hey, this is something I'm persuaded about, but it's not essential to the faith. There are also, as you get out further, opinions. Opinions are possibilities worth discussing, maybe even dismissing. Some example include in the Christian life, what do you do about alcohol? Do you drink it? Do you not? Media content? What do you watch? What do you don't watch? Basically anything that's legal, what do you do about it? The timing of when Jesus is going to return one day? The musical preference that we we give you from up here on stage? The communication style? Who do you like more? Who do you like less? How do you like what's been said? Church programming? 
and decision-making, these are all things you have every right to have an opinion about. And we would want you to discuss them amongst one another, with the leadership, all of those things. But where there is disagreement on those things, unity should not be broken. This is not a place where we should break away from each other just based on our preferences. And you see then why this is so important, right? Because people do this all the time. They break away from each other. They, they stop talking to each other. They, they, they kind of stop relating because they confuse opinions for convictions. That's a problem. Now, I want you to, to make this practical for yourself. I want you to think about something you passionately believe improves life. What is something on your mind right now that you passionately believe improves life? All right? Now, what category do you put that in, honestly? What category do you put that in, and what category should you put that in? Those are two different questions, right? Do you, do, do you believe about something so passionately, but really, it's just an opinion? But you notice it starts to distance yourself from other people because you believe it so strongly. Most of the visions and practices in the church happen because we confuse these categories. And that's where the exercise of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another is also needed. Because we're going to disagree about things sometimes. You're not, everything I say, you're not going to agree with. I'm going to express opinions sometimes. I'm going to say something I'm persuaded about. And it's okay if you disagree. Will you bear with me? Will I bear with you? Will I be humble about my opinions? Will I be gentle? Will I be patient? That's the other key to walking out our calling, to walk with Jesus with one another, is unity and care. Unity and convictions, but also unity and care. Surely you've heard the phrase before, you can win the battle but lose the war. Have you heard that before? And I have lived out this truth, unfortunately, many times in my life. More than once, I've been persuaded, even convinced of a truth, but the way I expressed that truth did not express care for people. And I regret that. And I'm saddened about that. Does that mean we should never express our opinions or our persuasions, our convictions? No. There's a way to do it that expresses humility, that expresses patience, that, that bears with one another. And I want to tell you about that a little bit too. I'll tell you about my friend Hank. I was a very new pastor when I attended a youth retreat that Hank was leading. This was, it was just a ton of fun. Going on this youth retreat was my first one with this group of students and God worked powerfully that weekend. And Hank, he was, he was a leader. He was leading this denominational retreat. And he, he meant well. And I'm not just saying that. Like, he meant well. He really meant so well. And even as he meant well, he said some things about the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, that made me really uncomfortable. Uh, he said at one point, forget about God and Jesus and just open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. And, well, and he also says, the Holy Spirit wants you to empty your mind. And worship him. I'm like, well, that's a problem as well. I don't see that in scripture. And I was uncomfortable with it. A couple months later, you know, I, I, I called Hank about it, expressed my concerns about what he was saying. And here I was, a young guy, a young punk pastor in his early 20s, confronting a seasoned pastor in his 40s, saying, hey, I have concerns about this. And who was I to do that? I mean, in some ways I don't know, but I did it. And I just think it was right for me to do it, but that was hard. But you know how he responded? Ryan, I see what you're saying. I think I got a little carried away. And, and he went on to say, you know, I, I, I'm even like, did your students handle that poorly? Did I confuse them at all? Do you hear how he handled that? 
handle that with humility, with patience with me as a young pastor, willing to admit, man, maybe I was wrong. In fact, like days later, he wrote me this, this awesome email. He said, hey, let's do more together. He said, will you lead the next retreat? Will you lead us in a seminar on how to use your spiritual gifts, how to discover and use your gifts? And, and it produced, as he was humble about that, it produced in me an eagerness to want to work together with him. And I worked really hard over the next few months to put together this, this content of how we can discover and use our, our, our gifts. And I talked about it with others, and I taught other people, and I practiced it on others. And then I, I led it at the retreat. And what happened there? Unity was achieved. Jesus was glorified. Relationships grew closer. Why? Because truth was shared, but there was a humility and a bearing with one another. That's what's done so. New Year starts tomorrow, and Jesus is calling all of us to walk together with him. And perhaps you've been hesitant because people don't necessarily think the same way you do. As, you, as you've talked to people in the church, you're like, people at Sunrise don't think like me. They don't believe like me. So let's together bear with people, one another, of different persuasions and opinions and share together the passions of our convictions in 2018. Let's pray. God, we, I, I know I'm challenged by this call not just to make goals around myself, even as it pertains to walking with you. Help me think of ways to walk together with others as I walk with you. Help me think of of ways to put myself out there so it's not just me and Jesus, but us and Jesus. That is the great calling to which all of us have been called, to help one another, to connect one another, to be with one another as we walk with you. Help Help us do so in a way where we share the core convictions of our faith. And don't get so ruffled and so angst-ridden about other stuff that gets in the way. And when other stuff gets in the way, help us love one another and bear with one another. Show humility and gentleness towards one another as we work out our differences. Help us do this together as a church this year, this upcoming year in 2018. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.